Well, we have uh, finished the series on Leviticus, and we're moving on to a new one today. Uh, I pray that that series was edifying to you, and it challenged you, again, to really grasp and, and wrestle with that idea of what is holiness, and what does it take for us to be made holy, and we certainly know that it, it took the blood of Christ to, to do that. Uh, but we're moving on today to a new four-week series. Uh, now, real quick, how many of you have ever seen the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail? People know what I'm, I'm talking about. Okay. Um, it was a, a slapstick British comedy. Uh, it was a really goofy movie. Uh, and it begins with uh, a bunch of, it's set in medieval times, and it's a bunch of villagers are bringing a woman uh, on trial. Uh, and when they bring her on trial, the nonsense essentially begins. Uh, and the, the ruling knight of the area, uh, he kind of formulates himself as the judge, and he's kind of hearing this case of why they're bringing this woman uh, to her. And essentially, they're accusing her of being a witch. And so they put on a fake hat, they put a fake nose on her, uh, and they argue that she looks like one. And they're like, yeah, but you put this stuff on me. Uh, and so they, the, the knight kind of brushes that off and says, well, what, what else do you have? What other evidence? And so one of the popular lines, one of the villagers yells out, she turned me into a newt. Right. And so he's staring at this man and he's like, well, you know, I got better. Right. So the knight's kind of trying to process all of this. And, and so they're going through all kind of nonsensical and just goofy statements. Uh, and so finally, the knight settles everyone down. And he says, look, there's an easy way to determine if she's a witch. It's a very sophisticated, it's a very scientific method to figure it out. And he basically says, look, what what floats? And they're like, well, Eventually, they realize ducks. Okay, good. So if ducks float, and if she floats, well, then she has to be a witch. And so they're all like, oh, this is amazing. And so they put her on a scale opposite this duck, and they realize, in fact, that she weighs the same amount of a duck. Therefore, she was a witch, right? Now, this, of course, this whole movie is just nonsense, and it's just designed to, to be goofy like that. Um, but this is what we would call a kangaroo court. And you might have heard of that term before. But essentially, a kangaroo court uh, is this idea that you are, are trying to force a verdict upon somebody without actually paying attention to any of the evidence, any of the facts, any of the witnesses, uh, or going through with any of the proper laws or procedures that a normal court case would handle. Uh, and so we call this a, a kangaroo court. Uh, and so Jesus, himself would have to endure his own kangaroo court. And that's what we're going to look at today and really over the next couple of weeks here is we're going to talk about the trial of Jesus. We're going to spend four weeks as we move into the Easter season. And each week, I want to primarily use one of the different gospels because every gospel takes a different look at the life of Christ. And every gospel is going to offer something a little bit different about what Jesus has to go through here. So uh, Matthew tends to focus focus on uh, Jesus as the king of the Jews. Mark tends to focus on the action and servanthood of Jesus. 
Luke focuses on a very historical account. And so for those that are Gentiles, that tends to lend the best information to their understanding. And John tends to look at the deity of Christ. And so each one of these is going to offer us a little bit of a different picture of what Jesus went through and this trial that he had to endure before going to the actual cross. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew 26 today, primarily Matthew 26. It's going to give us the deepest look uh, at the actual arrest and trial of Jesus himself. Uh, And so we're going to see, again, a court case that violates just about every sort of rule that existed. We are going to see a court case uh, that has essentially pronounced a man guilty uh, before he even has attempt a chance at his actual innocence. And so as we walk through this timeline of these different events, we're going to see just how much of a kangaroo court this was that Jesus had to go through. Now, Jesus's fame and popularity had been going at this time. He'd come into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Uh, Remember, all the Jews were to come to celebrate and honor what God had done and and their uh, redemption from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. Uh, And Jesus has clashed already with the Pharisees. So the Pharisees are the religious leaders. They certainly don't like Jesus at this point, and they're very upset with him. So in Matthew 26, verses uh, 3 to 5, it says, Then the chief priest and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there might be a riot among the people. So the the leaders gather together and they start plotting and they're scheming. And they're like, look, we have to do this in kind of a very secretive, cunning, sly type of fashion because we don't want people upset with us. We don't want to cause a riot, but we are planning to arrest Jesus and deal with this man once and for all. And you notice here it says the chief priests, the elders... And the high priest. Well, well, that is essentially what we call the Jewish Sanhedrin. That that was the supreme court of Jewish law and the supreme court uh, of Jewish spirituality. So these are all of the bigwigs of Jewish culture are the ones trying to get Jesus arrested. And what's the job of a court? A job of a court is to administer justice, right? They they have a case presented to them. They listen to the facts and the evidence, and then they make a decision on what they believe is fair and what they believe is best. But here what we see is that the people who are supposed to be the court already have it out for Jesus. So Jesus' back is already against the wall at this point. So they have the Lord's Supper. Jesus goes off to pray in the garden and his disciples fall asleep on him. And then the entourage shows up to arrest Jesus. So now we're going to hop all the way over to 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived with him with a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a single with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the man stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for a sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. 
Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? So Jesus is betrayed, right? Judas was one of his 12 disciples and he basically sells him out for a bag of money. And he says, look, the one that I kiss That is the guy that you need to go and arrest. And so Jesus betrays him with a kiss. And after he settles Peter down, right, Peter pulls out his sword, cuts off this man's ear. Jesus is like, settle down, Peter. Okay, I have this taken care of. He then says this in in 55. He says, at this time, Jesus said to to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But all of this taken place that the writing of the prophets must be fulfilled. Then all of his disciples deserted him, and he fled. Jesus is like, look, look, are you guys serious? You brought all of these people, you brought all of these people armed with clubs and swords to come and arrest me because you think I'm leading some sort of rebellion. It's just me here. It's just me, and you've brought all these people to try and arrest me because you think I've done something. And so after he's arrested, now Jesus is taken to Ananias, who is, who is the former high priest. So this is the first piece of the trial. So he's been arrested, and now he's going to have to start to explain himself. So in John 18, uh, 12 and 13, it says, Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Ananias, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. So the fact that Ananias essentially gets first crack at Jesus here tells us a lot about his influence and his authority. So Ananias was the former high priest. He's not the high priest anymore. But because of his influence, he still holds a lot of sway that they're like, well, let's, let's take him here first before we actually take him to the real high priest Caiaphas at this time, okay? And we don't have a lot. Uh, John adds a little bit more of the conversation, but essentially he he, he peppers him with all kinds of questions, uh, and Jesus is answering some of these questions. Um, But after it's done, Ananias looks at this and says, okay, we can proceed further. I think we have a case here against Jesus. So go ahead now and go take him to Caiaphas. And so now he goes to Caiaphas. And Luke twenty two fifty four 54 says that he's actually taken to Caiaphas's house. So at least he's now in front of the proper authority, but he's not in front of the proper setting at this point. And so we continue in Matthew 57 to 67. Those who arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He encountered and sat down with the guards. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus, so they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. 
The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and then coming on to the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and he said, he has spoken blasphemy. What more, what, how many more witnesses do we need? Look, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face, struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? So he's he's now on trial before Caiaphas. They're asking him questions. They've got all these false witnesses. Nobody can really seem to get their story straight here. And they finally just ask him point blank. And he says, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the living God? And Jesus is like, yes. Now, Mark tells us their statements do not agree. So we have a whole bunch of fault witnesses that come, but everybody's saying something different. And nobody has a story that seems to align. And they're kind of like, what are we supposed to do here? We have all these people that we brought to accuse Jesus, but their stories are so outlandish, we actually have nothing to go off here to accuse Jesus. But then finally, Jesus does it for them. Because when Jesus proclaims that he is God, They're like, perfect, we've got him. He said it, we got him, that's blasphemy. Yes, Jesus, oh, we got you. And that deserved death. But they're not done quite yet. Because remember, this is just at Caiaphas' house. So, So they actually have to actually have now a formal trial. And so now we go over to Matthew 27, verses one and two. It says, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Okay, so essentially all those people were already at the meeting. They've already heard all of the information, but they were like, hey, just for appropriate sake, uh, for just making this a little bit more formal, let's actually hold his trial before the real Sanhedrin and we'll just proclaim him guilty and go take him to Pilate because we don't have the right or the authority to actually sentence Jesus to death. And so they have this quick trial. And now they're taking him to Pilate. And so essentially they're waiting for daybreak, right? As soon as that light flips on, as soon as he's awake, we're going first thing in the morning, we're going to go talk to Pilate and we're going to get this taken care of. So now let's hop over to Luke really quick. Luke chapter 23. So now he's standing before Pilate and says, then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. They began to accuse him saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all of the way here. So he's questioned by Pilate. Now, understand, Pilate really wants nothing to do with this. 
he, he's looking at this and he says, look, they're talking to you about being the king of the Jews. Uh, listen, I, I, don't, I don't understand your laws. I don't understand your religion, nor do I actually care, Jesus. OK, I really don't want to deal with this. So you help me kind of figure this out. Well, thankfully, Pilate here, who's who's in charge of all of uh, Jerusalem at this point, he's the he's the, the Roman authority. He goes, oh, I got myself an out here. He said he's from Galilee. That's perfect because right now Herod Antipas is in town and he is a patriarch of Galilee. He can deal with this and not me. And so he says, perfect. I'm going to Jesus. You know what I'm going to do? I'm actually going to have you go talk to this guy, Herod, first. Hopefully he can figure this out, because, again, I really don't care and I don't want to be a part of this whole process. And so now Jesus gets sent over to Herod Antipas. Now, uh, Herod Antipas uh, was the son of Herod the Great. So if you remember, Herod the Great was the king who wanted to kill Jesus when he was a baby. Um, and his dad had ruled over it. He had died off and there was some confusion and some arguments about who should take over. And so Rome basically says, look, we're just going to kind of divide up Herod's kingdom and give different parts to his son. Uh, and so his son, Herod Antipas, gets a part of it. Again, he's a patriarch, meaning he got a, a quarter or a fourth of the area to rule over and understand that. He's not quite 100 percent Jewish. The, the Jews don't look at Herod and think like, oh, yes, this is our Jewish guy. We love him. They actually kind of thought he was more of a traitor. He really was put in by the Roman authority. So he's really kind of blurring the lines here of is he Jewish or is he Roman? Is he is he really the authority or not? We don't really respect him. But again, he's got Roman backing behind him. And so he goes over to him and he says, you now deal with Jesus. And so in verse six, it says, on hearing this, Pilate asked if this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. For what he had heard about him, he had hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. So Herod's like peppering with more questions. And he's like, Jesus, who are you? He goes, do a miracle. Prove to me that you're the son of God. Prove to me. I want to see this. You call the claim to be the king of the Jews. You, you claim to be the son. You prove it to me. And Jesus is not doing any of it. So Herod's like, fine, forget it. You know, take him back to Pilate. I'm done with him. I don't want to have anything to do with him. So now he has to go back to Pilate a second time. And again, remember, Pilate doesn't want to be dealing with this. So let's go back over to Matthew, verse 15, in verse 27. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. But when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who was called the Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they handed Jesus over to him. When Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. 
Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a, a, suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall then I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Pilate asked, and they answered, crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was going nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. And all the people answered, let his blood be on us and our children. And then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So again, Pilate's asking him more questions. He's trying to give him a couple outs here. Jesus doesn't go for it. He's like, I don't want to deal with this. Listen, here you go, crowd. What do you want me to do? Do you want me to release Jesus, who claims to be the king of the Jews, or do you want Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist and a murderer? And they're like, give us the murderer. Give us that guy, because we don't want Jesus. And so Pilate says, fine. And now he's sentenced to be crucified. And again, all of this was done through a kangaroo court. Everything that happened to Jesus here, all of what we just read, happened in about a matter of 12 hours from his arrest until when he was tried. Jesus went through six different trials. Anaiphas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, Pilate, Herod, and Pilate a second time. Twelve hours, six different trials. And all of this was completely unjust. So let me just walk you through why this trial was completely unjust and was a, a sham and never should have taken place. So first off, the timing of it. All of this occurred at night. You know, they, they didn't want this to be done in a manner that people would have been awake, that people could have heard what was going on, right? They did it under the cover of darkness, so that way nobody would have been there to figure out what was going on. And they actually had rules that if a capital case, when I say capital case, I mean a case involving potential death or execution, they had a rule that stated that needed to take place during the day. Okay? So, so this wasn't even happening uh, at the appropriate time of the day, and a verdict needed to be reached during the day. So I couldn't hold a trial at night and convict somebody of death at night. That, that was against their own laws of the Sanhedrin. It'd be like in our country saying, we're going to have a trial, but we're going to hold it at night. We're going to close all the doors. We're not going to let the public come in. We're not going to let the media come in, the newspaper. We're not going to let anybody video. We're just going to hold it in quiet and secret, pronounce this man guilty. And then when everybody wakes up, say, hey, we had a trial. This guy's guilty. Okay, that, that's what it would be like in our country. Also, we have to understand, remember, this was over the Passover feast. They should not have been conducting business right now. This was meant as a time to remember and worship and honor the Lord. 
So there's no reason why this court case should have been happening during this time uh, and at this place. The second thing is because it was the due process was unjust. So he has court at Ananias' place and he has it as Caiaphas' house. You don't hold a court case in somebody's house. You hold it in an actual court room. And that was not happening here for Jesus. Then they go on and say, look, we're actually going to prosecute you. We're actually going to act as prosecution and judge. Okay, because we are the ones who want you arrested and we're plotting this and then we're going to decide your outcome. So it would be like sitting in a courtroom and you are the defendant and the judge is up there and says, why are you on broad? Why are you brought in child? Oh, I claim to be the king of the Jews. Judge walks down and he says, your judge, I'd like to argue against this man, argues against the man and then quick runs back upstage and says, OK, yes, I will hear this information. That's essentially what was going on with this. And not to mention that numerous times Jesus was physically assaulted throughout this process. So the due process was completely unjust. We already know the witnesses were unjust. It said it there clearly in Matthew that these were false witnesses. Nobody had any evidence against him. Deuteronomy 17 says that if you are going to accuse someone of a crime, you need two or three witnesses. They can't get anybody to agree on a statement. And where was Jesus' defense? See, if Jesus was brought on trial, he should have had the right to have people speak on his behalf. But none of that was allowed. So the witnesses themselves were unjust in this process. And the conviction was unjust. So as I said, we already had rules that said if you were going to convict somebody of a, of a capital crime, it needed to happen during the day. Well, here is the other piece of this rule. That if you were going to accuse someone and find them guilty, you actually needed to take 24 hours before you decided on the death penalty. They did this entire thing in 12 hours. They cut the whole process in half. Not to mention the fact that how many people in here basically said we find no claim. There's nothing wrong we find about this man that deserves him of death, but they convicted him anyway. And finally, Pilate's final consent was unjust. As I said, Pilate was the Roman authority in this area. Pilate was the only one that had a right to condemn a person to death at this point. But see, this time of year was always problematic because whenever the Jews showed up into Jerusalem, the Romans got really nervous because they thought this is just another opportunity for rebellion and riot. And so everybody was on edge. And Pilate knew that this was a hotbed. And if he didn't handle this appropriately, this could cost Pilate his job. So Pilate's whole focus here was basically, how do I settle these people down so I don't get in trouble and lose my position with Roman authority? So what does Pilate do? He basically consents to the mob. He gives in to the mob and says, okay, you guys just tell me what you want to happen. I can let Jesus go or I can let Barabbas go. And they're like, we want Jesus. And he says, fine, if you guys want it, if that will make you happy, then that's what I'll do. I will consent to allowing Jesus to be executed. 
So everything about this trial screams injustice. Everything about this trial screams how completely unfair and dishonest and corrupt this system was to hold Jesus accountable to what they claimed was a crime. But my point in highlighting all of this is to not demand an acquittal of Jesus. My point is to not try to go back into history and fight for Jesus' right to have a fair trial. What I want us to understand is Jesus' love through the trial. You know, Jesus wasn't surprised by any of this. This doesn't catch him off guard at all. Matthew 26 Verses 1 and 2, when Jesus had finished saying all of these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. That, that was right before the verses that I started with, where then the leaders plotted against Jesus. Jesus knew what was about to happen to him. Jesus knew they were plotting and scheming against him. He's not taken off guard by this fact. He's not like, oh my gosh, you guys are trying to arrest me? What have I done wrong? I'm completely taken back. Jesus knew. Jesus knew this was going to happen. And earlier in Mark 10, James and John are talking with their mother about who gets to sit at the right hand of God, right? They're having this argument of basically like, who, who do I get to like be like my super like confidant next to? And, and they're having this discussion and Jesus gets wind of this conversation and he says, listen, guys, can you drink this cup that I'm about to go through? James, John, are, are you prepared to go through what I'm about to endure at the cross? You know, you keep talking about who gets to be number one next to me. You have no idea what I am about to go through. And later on in the conversation, he ends it with, just as the Son of Man did not come to be saved or come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew. Jesus knew about this trial and what was going to happen to him. And you know what? It's not like Jesus couldn't have stopped this. Remember when, when they're in the garden and when Peter pulls out his sword and he cuts off the man's ear and he tells him to put it away. He says, I've got 12 legions of angels at my disposal. If I want this to be stopped, I could stop it, Peter. But I know what's going to happen. I know what has to be done. I know what I'm going to go through, Peter. So why? Why does he endure the injustice and the humiliation of this trial? 1 Peter 2. It says he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins 
and live for righteousness, by his wounds you have been healed. Jesus trusted his father. And he said, Lord, I want to do what your will is. And his father said, my will is for you to go to the cross. My will for you is to be executed. My will for you is to die. Because what Jesus also knew is that it was only through the blood of his death on the cross that would bring us salvation. Jesus knew that the only way that the penalty of our sins would be forgiven is because he would give himself up for us. That the righteous had to die for the unrighteous. You know, we live in a society where I think we could admit now that really no longer holds to Judeo-Christian values. We live in a society that looks at Christianity and despises it. We are the villains. We are the bad guys. We are the hate mongers. And society is continuing to push in on us and saying, you know what we need to do? We need to outlaw Christianity. We need to outlaw people who speak on behalf of Jesus Christ and the values and the morals of Jesus Christ. These people that preach through forgiveness, through the, through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have to stop that. And I think so many times we probably are starting to feel that pinch now where we go, the justice system has turned its back on us. How unfair you know what the justice system already turned its back on Christ why do we expect anything different but see the greatest act of injustice is not what was done to Christ the greatest act of injustice is not what society is done or is trying to do to us. The greatest act of injustice is the fact that we have committed a sin and a righteous, perfect lamb of God bore our punishment instead. If you want to talk about injustice, that is the injustice that exists, that a man would die for me. But you know what? It's in that injustice where we see the ultimate love of Christ. Romans 5.8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, he died for us. You know, as we approach the Easter season, th this is why we worship. This is why we praise Christ for what he has done for us. Because we are not deserving of his death. But yet he freely went to that cross knowing everything that was going to happen. Because he loved us. Let's pray. Father, we can so quickly become selfish.
We can so easily fixate on ourselves and scream and rant of what the world is doing to us. We can so easily point the fingers at everyone else in this world and say, Lord, look, look how they have done wrong. Look how I have been mistreated. But Lord, what we have to remember about your word, it is not what the world has done, but God, what we have done against you. Lord, we are so grateful that you have forgiven us. We are so grateful that you were willing to endure for the sake of for the, for the sake of the fact that God we could be back in your presence and in your kingdom. And so I pray that as we go that we are constantly reminded about your holiness, that we are reminded about what we have done wrong and how we have violated your nature. And that should cause us to get on our knees and thank you and praise you and give you all of the gratitude in this world. And that, Lord, it should cause our hearts to be transformed by the power of your spirit that we may live for you and not for ourselves. So thank you for the ultimate act of love, which was the death on a cross. Amen.